Shelly, let's face it, texting candidates is the easiest way to hire quicker today. But your cell phone doesn't connect to your ATS. You're sharing your personal number with strangers. That's pretty scary, right, Shelly? And mm. it's not even legally compliant. Mm, this is where our friends at Rectex come in. They've created simple yet powerful text recruiting software that works with your ATS. Plus, it's designed by recruiters for recruiters, so you know it works. To learn more and book a demo, visit www.rectxt.com, mention the Recruitment Flex, and get 10% off annual plans. Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. Shelly, it's been a little while since I've seen you, probably like three days. Good to see you again. <laughs> Good to see you, Serge. Thanks for having me back on the show. I yeah, mean, anytime. Yeah. Anytime, Shelly. Speaking of which, we were just talking in the green room and cannot believe that our next guest we have not had on the show sooner. So we're going to fix that because I am very pleased to welcome to the show today, Julie Sowash, who's the Executive Director of Disability Solutions. Welcome to the show, Julie. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on. I was just saying it's taken a long time, and I am very excited and very privileged to be joining you both today on the show. So thanks for having me. You know, the last time we talked, Julie, you were buying me free drinks on a big Ferris wheel, and you convinced me <laughs> that you needed to come on the Recruitment Flex. That's what's happened, right? I will bribe you with endless amounts of free drinks, buddy, anytime. So no worries. Perfect. <laughs> Julie, it feels like we're old friends. We have met in person and have known of one another since we started the podcast. But for our audience who have not met you, would you mind just walking us through who's Julie Sowash and talk a bit about your journey in the talent space? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the executive director and one of the founding members of a nonprofit called Disability Solutions. We're based out of the U.S. My team works all over the country and we help companies, big and small, figure out how to hire people with disabilities and not in a performative way, but in an outcomes driven way. And I have been at that for almost 13 years now. And it's so fun because it all just it happened the exact way that the universe spelled it out for us in terms of how did I get here. About 14, 15 years ago, I was managing a federal grant for the state of Indiana that was how do you overcome barriers to employment for people with disabilities? And we built out a five-phase strategy to help address that in our state. And through that, I was lucky enough to learn about affirmative action and all of the the rules that are in place in the United States to help drive some of that change to limited and varied amounts of success. And I just happened to get connected with this amazing nonprofit out of New York called Ability Beyond. And their CEO at the time called me and said, hey, Pepsi's been on our board of directors for about the last 40 years. And they, they know how to hire women. They're getting much better at hiring people of color. They're doing pretty well in the veteran space. And they just came and said, hey, 
we can't figure out how to hire people with disabilities. If we pay you, will you build it for us? And they called me and they said, hey, will you build this for Pepsi? And I said, oh, hell yes, I will. That's a once in a lifetime call that you get. That was my introduction into talent space and really into talent technology, because as an outsider, what I never understood was all of the technology that goes into getting or not getting to that first interview, to that job. And that's where we spent the time figuring out the first five years with Pepsi. How do we make sure that all of these systems are working? And that we can get people equitably through the door. And so here we are 12 years later, and we're contributing back to our parent company to help them provide services for people with very significant disabilities. And we've helped about 7,000 people get to work. We work with 60 plus companies around the world. It's just an adventure that I never would have even imagined a few years ago. What was the biggest learning from your experience of working with PepsiCo? Anything really struck out at you that you did not expect? We could do a whole hour on this question. There was a few things. And one I sort of alluded to is all of the different technologies that you encounter as a job seeker. So when you're working with a big fortune 25, 50 company like a Pepsi, as a job seeker, you may interact with 10 different vendor technologies that all look and feel like Pepsi that are really built not to help you, no matter what they say, but to help the company hire talent the quickest and cheapest way possible. And this isn't the fault of the technology. This is the way, especially in the US, that the data management techniques get put into place, the way that the data parameters get put into place to limit risk, really cause inequitable talent funnels. And so what we needed to do was say, okay, this is what the regular talent funnel looks like. How can we start to move people with disabilities through that same process but create equity within that process. Because, you know, so much of what's been done around, let's just say diversity employment, but I would say especially disability employment has always been living outside of the technology. Oh, I am a hiring manager and I have a passion for people with disabilities. Send me your candidates, email me, send me an Excel spreadsheet, just that kind of stuff. That's not scalable and that's not a strategy. So what we had to do was work with all of the amazing vendors that PepsiCo entrusted with their brand to make sure that we could create that equitable process. And that worked. Hmm. That was our biggest learning is that the biggest barrier to employment, it doesn't happen after you get to the job. It is before you get to that very first interview. It's all of that technology and making sure that companies understand how to make sure that technology is working to create pipelines that work for the talent that we can put through the door. So Julie, you know, you're really going to have to educate me here because I don't know what I don't know. Can you tell us a story or give us an example of technology that becomes a barrier? Help me understand what exactly are you referring to and what type of disability would find that as a barrier? Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we have what we generally think of, which are unaccessible technology. So if I am a person who is blind or low vision, or I use assistive technology to maneuver across a website, if those aren't accessible, a person who uses that tech can't apply. That's sort of what everyone always thinks of, but mm -hmm. it's actually much, much larger. And one of my favorite examples is and again, this isn't the technology's decision. This is the hiring company's decision about how they put processes in place 
within the technology. So if you have a company who's a very high volume, um, I've got lots of warehouse roles, lots of call center roles. What will generally happen is that a company will limit the number of applicants that can actually apply to that job and then the requisition closes. That's a data management technique. And that creates a very small pool. And so what happens for people with disabilities who are working with community-based providers who may not have access to technology at their fingertips every given second, by the time they learn about that job, that job has closed. Mm. And so when we can create a parallel funnel to allow candidates to move through in different pools that don't have that data management technique put in place, then we can move them through the technology. What we do is we think about every step and every process. And if there's a barrier, how do we solve for that barrier? And the very first barrier sometimes that we identify when we're working with a company is they're never even getting to see the light of day in terms of applying to that job because the role is closing so quickly. That doesn't happen with every company, but that's a really easy data management technique to understand that Mm -hmm. then is put into play by the technology, in this case, the applicant tracking system that the company's using. Mm. I want to change topics a little bit. Obviously, we've just come out of a pandemic that really changed the way we work, how we Mm -hmm. applied for jobs. I'm going to make assumption that it was very positive for the disability community as far as more remote work. But can you give us some insights of what the pandemic did to this particular sector of people looking for jobs? Yeah, and it was actually a double-edged sword. So let me kind of step back. I am a person who lives with disabilities. I think you guys both know that about me. My disabilities are hidden. They're both cognitive, so processing, and mental health related. And so being remote was something that was important for me to be able to be successful at my job. So I have had the privilege to be remote for the past 14 years as an accommodation to my work. And it's allowed me to be more successful. So there are a lot of people like me who got opportunities when companies said, you know what, remote by design is not possible. Working remotely is not conducive to our culture. We don't have the tech, blah, blah, blah. When the world shut down, we got to see how fast the entire world could pivot to a remote environment. And so that kind of excuse, and I'll air quotes that, but that kind of excuse that that's not a reasonable accommodation, that went away. And so what Mm. we saw is a lot of opportunity open up for professionals with disabilities, for entry-level individuals into professional and salary jobs that would not have existed in the first place and to demonstrate our value. So that was really big and that was really important. And I also think it showed the world what it's like to have an environment that is not conducive to your own success, right? You wanted to go see your family. You wanted to go to the office. You wanted to do everything that you did, but the world around you was not welcoming. It was not built in a way that you could go out as an able-bodied person. And so people experienced that for the first time, and they understood from a social perspective that it is important that we think about how disability integrates into the world. The other side of the coin is that diversity in general and people with disabilities are often most hard hit when a labor market turns south because we are in hospitality roles, entry-level roles, those things that kind of get cut first when people stop spending. And so we were really negatively impacted at the beginning. And then we really had a big opportunity 
sort of mid-pandemic. And then as we got under control, then we saw those entry-level workers and, and hospitality, those guys actually have a great resurgence in their ability to go back to work. And in fact, in the United States, we are at the highest participation level for people with disabilities in the labor force and the lowest unemployment rate that we've been in decades. It's a really remarkable thing that we plan on definitely continuing to ride and push forward to create change. Right now, there's a lot of pressure for a lot of companies to return to office. There's obviously layoffs, especially in the tech sector. What does the environment look like right now as we speak? Yeah, I I mean, I think that we're going to continue to see that. And we tend to pivot one way back very strongly the other direction and meet somewhere in the middle. And that's where I see that we'll go. Talent is going to continue to move in the direction of a work-life balance and a workplace that works for them. We've seen hopefully a once in a hundred years kind of event in everyone's life that we shared together that said, you know what, we only get to go around this planet one time and we expect to do it in a way that we want to do it and that works for us. We've been seeing a huge rise in the way that people with disabilities use their voices and have worked and bonded together to make change. And I think that continues, but it's going to be an uphill fight, especially as we get back into those habits of everybody being on site and everybody being able to have those same kind of social circles and interactions around the water cooler. So Julie, I had the privilege of seeing you present at Unleash with JCK. If we spell that out in full, it is Jenny Cotty Kangas. Am I Cody saying that Kangas. right? Cody Kangas. Cody Kangas. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> it was something that I was really intrigued to hear because of the work being done with Pando Logic and a product that they had released called Pando Diversity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that initiative and about what that partnership has brought? Yeah. And first, I will say thank you to the Unleashed team. We did have some technical issues, but we had amazing turnout both times. That team is fantastic. The team on the ground, Paige and and team are amazing. The thing with Pando, again, kind of going back to our approach at Disability Solutions is that we work to never create an additional barrier to employment, and we want to solve for the barriers as we identify them. And so the first barrier to employment is knowing that a job exists. And so that comes around advertising. And for companies like a Pepsi, like a Synchrony, those big guys spending money to advertise with us is very affordable, very cost-effective activity. For a lot of other companies, and especially as programmatic grows in the way that advertising happens, we felt like it was really important as a business and also as a mission to make sure that we offered that solution so that we had those jobs in front of eyes that are ready to get to work. And so we spent about a year and a half, and Pando was just such an amazing partner. We're really trying to figure out how does programmatic work for a niche board, and we would love to partner with you guys on it. And they came to the table immediately and really helped us to build that side of our business, but also to help understand what a diversity programmatic solution could look like. And so I was just absolutely thrilled to be able to work with JCK and the marketing team over there who is fantastic to 
announce this product. It's actually here and people can move some of their budget into Pando Diversity and ensure that programmatically they are getting to as many different places as possible and that they're going to be able to see performance metrics off of that. And so it's such an exciting time not just for the advertising, but also for niche job boards to monetize in different ways and also get access to employers that they wouldn't otherwise have access to who can't afford to do a full duration or subscription. I think it's a one of a kind, not to go over the top, but I'm really excited about it. It is extremely exciting. And Pendologic, obviously, being a big player in the programmatic space is a great partner for a niche board. I have some confessions for you, Julie. When I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I never think of disability. And it's not because I don't want to. It just doesn't come up top of mind. So how can we get disability solutions, disability being a big part of the DNI conversation? What's your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, and that's the truth, right? We know that only about 4% of the Fortune 1000 have disability in their DEI strategy. It's a conversation that's been changing over the past 10 years. And quite frankly, there are a lot of times where DEI leaders told me, we're still figuring out race and gender, get in line. There was some pretty wow. ugly conversations. And certainly I can understand there's still a massive amount of work to do on race and gender and every other group. But the thing is, is that disability is a part of every one of those groups. About a quarter of women have a disability. About 50% of women over the age of 50 have a disability. Black women who have disabilities have the highest unemployment rate and the highest pay gap in the Mm. United States. And so what we really did was start to pivot around not just our value, which is something that we have not done well in terms of using our voice for, but then we've also started to help companies understand that intersectionality is very real. And it's something that if you're thinking about how do I hire more people of color, how do I hire more women, by not including disability in the strategy, you are cutting out a quarter to half of that community because you're not being proactive. And the Mm -hmm. other thing is that When you design for people with disabilities, universal design is the technique, but you create a more inclusive environment for every community when you design for us. And so we really had to pivot that message to make sure that we were saying, guess what? The diversity pie is not a limited size. We shouldn't be fighting over it. We should be fighting together for it. And let's just start by saying, here's our diversity statement and people with disabilities, just like that initial thought of being proactive and including us in the very minimum of a statement, that's step one. Those are the basics, right? Every time you hear it, Serge, from now on, you know that's it. Even just the very beginnings of changing that representative language is it. Understanding how disability impacts and intersects with every other community is the next piece. And then the last piece, really, and this is one thing that we focused on when building our business was we're not doing anything that doesn't have an outcome. And so if I can't measure it, we're not doing it. So much around disability and employment has been purely performative. It's been philanthropic and charitable based. And quite frankly, Mm. it's been insulting to talented people with disabilities who are already working in your workplace, who are ready to go to work. And we had to change that message. So 
for me, I really pivoted to that business message. And what I found is the middle ground is you have to tell a people story, but you have to show that there are business metrics that are there that make investing in us a wise decision in our community. Mm-hmm. And Julie, you had talked earlier, you've worked with some pretty significant employers like PepsiCo, American Express. At the top of the show, you talked about how they saw the need, so they sought out someone to help them solve it. And we've talked a lot about the top of the funnel. Yes, you need to fix the front first, because if you don't even know that they're hiring, that's obviously the biggest barrier. But then the next thing I think about is how this is accepted within the organization. Do you also help organizations with getting them ready? Because it is like being the first person with a hearing aid or first person that needs a special chair because of spinal problems. What should companies be doing to prepare to welcome and keep those people? And that's a great question. What happens after day one? or what happens day one forward. And we do a lot of training with the companies that we work with and the people leaders that is custom to the group that they're a part of. What's right for recruiters and hiring managers is a little different than what's for a frontline supervisor who's trying to manage a person with a disability, with HR, with the C-suite, right? So we have to make sure that even though the base message about our value, about who we are and the heterogeneity of people with disabilities, if you've met me, you've met a person with a disability, we are a very different community and we tend to get lumped all together. So we do tons and tons of education. We always are presenting, again, that business case of that value. We're also working on the other side. We have about 13,000 community-based contacts around the world who are some of the times the front line to getting a person to work. We also work with them to prepare the job seeker to know when they should self-identify, when they should self-disclose, all of those things. But one thing that I think is really important, and I was so blessed when I had a leader that helped me with this, is with my disability, I can see the whole picture and I can see the top to the bottom and every piece, but I had no idea how to break those pieces into usable parts and to start to create solutions and activities that got me to that high level that I could already see. It was that kind of inability to move a lot of times. And I had a leader who understood that I learned differently and Mm -hmm. I took information in differently and was patient and saw my value in the ability to help me break those pieces and parts down. And, you know, we don't leave bad companies, we leave bad managers. The point is if we invest again in how we train our people leaders on the different ways that people learn and they take information in and then they create a repetition to be able to do their roles effectively and empower our people leaders to do that, then turnover drops for every segment of the workforce. It's not just people with disabilities, but when you think about how do I manage a person with a disability, for the most part, you're going to be managing different learning styles. You may have to accommodate schedules or physical accommodations, but the majority is going to be around how does a person with a disability learn, take in, and then do the job that you need them to do. And so we spend a lot of time there to help prepare leaders. And finally, I think employee resource groups are vastly undervalued, especially around the disability angle. So we work a lot with ERG leaders and disability leaders within companies to help them develop 
strategies that mature and grow their message and create defined activities that they know that they're accomplishing so that they're pushing up to their leadership that not only do we have value around retention, employee engagement, but we're driving innovation within the company. We're helping attract talent. As a community, we have to decide what message we want to send out when it comes to employment. And the ERGs are really critical in changing and shifting that message from caregiver only or philanthropic only to talent mm-hmm. value. And so once we're in the door, that's what we're working on. It's a constant and consistent training. It's normalization. Disability is not a scary thing. And that's all we're taught is it's either scary or it's pitiful. And so getting past that and then providing for ERGs, uh, what's in it for me if I'm a person with a disability to come and join that group and make it a part of my growth strategy as an employee? I'm wondering, though, when you talk about ESGs and we look at these big companies, what about smaller companies? If you're in a company of 200 people, is it different? So it's not different from a once you get in the door thing. I think that is pretty universal. They may not have an employee resource group, they not have those direct things, but there are cultural things that can be done. And those are going to be very reflective of what happens at a big company. It's just going to happen on a, a smaller scale. I think where it's more challenging in, in full transparency for smaller companies to hire people with disabilities does go back to the top of the funnel making sure that they're attracting talent and they're getting their messaging out to you know people who will choose them. Why would I choose small company X over big company PepsiCo? That's really in your employment branding. That's in getting the messaging right. And that messaging is, again, it's people with disabilities can grow in this company, that we give back to the community. And this is a place where you come and we see your value. And that's really where I think that smaller companies can spend that time and they can have a huge impact because they do the majority of the hiring throughout Mm -hmm. the world. And so how do we empower them in a way that helps them to get that message out, but also to get it right is really important. And the other thing I would say that's universal across small companies and large is that Everyone gets very scared about messing it up. And let me just tell you, you're going to muck it up. This is like my favorite thing. I say it to everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. You are going to muck it up. If you allow perfection to be the enemy of the good, you're never going to move. And so just start moving. And then on the other side... You know, I had this conversation today. I'm talking about job seekers with disabilities entering the workplace and allowing for a little bit of grace with those people leaders. If we're willing to have a a transparent conversation, I don't expect you to be perfect. I just expect you to hear what I need. And then we figure it out together. And that's really the two worlds coming together in a best case scenario. Perfect. I do want to change gears a little bit and get overall sense of what Julie Solwash thinks about the world of work right now. We're in a pretty crazy environment, obviously with AI, layoffs in the tech sector. There's a lot going on, right? But would love a prediction of what you think is going to be the biggest shift in the world of work in 2023 and beyond. That's a tough and an exciting question. I'll be the buzzword girl. I guess I (laughs) I just can't get away from it. I do think that the power of AI is going to continue to be the primary focus in driving our technology and where our solutions go. And I think that's a really exciting and also a really scary 
thing, especially for people from underrepresented communities who, quite frankly, are not well represented and not equitably represented in databases that are going to be the data set that the AI learns off of. Some of the conversations mm. that we're having right now almost on a daily basis is we need a clean data set and somebody needs to fund a clean data set that can then be audited for output and interpretability. And we need to put some standards that are going to not come from the U.S. government or the Canadian government or anyone else, but that we agree as a community are the standards. And that's the way for us to get ahead of what's going to be probably pending regulation over the next couple of years. I think about how amazing if we did have that clean data set that we could start to move people into work that have never had the opportunity to get in front of it before. And so I'm going glass half full on this one and saying someone is going to do it well and we're going to do it right. And it's going to be my voice that you guys all hear in your ears for the next three years talking about a clean data set. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Shelly, do you feel smarter after this interview? I do. I do, right? And And I think there's much more awareness around accepting those and embracing those, always seeing the strengths that somebody brings. And the fact that somebody learns differently, anybody who's in a leadership role, that is your job. Yeah. Regardless of labeling anything, even as a disability, that is truly the heart of your job of a good leader is figure out what people need to be successful. It's so simple. Yeah. And I think you're right. There is a lot of fear around what you don't know and fear that you're going to offend somebody. So I do feel smarter, Julie. And it's been such an honor learning more about the great work that you've been doing. Thank you. And I appreciate being given the opportunity to join you guys today. It's been awesome. So Julie, I was going to ask you what's the easiest way to find you, but I got to tell a story of the first time I met Julie, I'm just gushing over her co-hosts of their great podcast, Crazy and the King. Do go listen to back episodes, please. Spent 10 minutes saying how great Torin Ellis was, just ignoring Julie, who's right in front of me. is be like, oh, you have the best co-host, went on about him. That's how big an idiot I am. So Julie, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, what's the easiest way? Yes. And I'm not going to say that I have been just twisting that knife just every time I see you to get exactly where we are today. No, any social, I'm going to be Julie Sowash. Twitter, LinkedIn, you can visit us at disabilitytalent.org. My email's right on the contact us. So any way that you want to get a hold of me, any social, I'm going to be there and I'd be thrilled to connect with any of your listeners. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for recording with us. You guys. (laughs) Thank Thank you, Julie. We'll see you soon. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.